back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. We're actually almost done with season six, which is a little bit of a shorter season for a couple of reasons. One, if I'm not careful, this season could go on forever because I like a lot of movies. Two, because if I were to let that happen, I would be denying myself and you, dear listener, the opportunity for some fun seasons in the future because I would have already talked about all of these movies. And number three, I've planned summer blockbusters for season seven, and I kind of think that that season needs to actually be in summer. So this season will just be seven episodes, which comes out to 14 movies. So today's theme went through some changes. First, it was people hired to kill people (laughs) with 1997's Gross Point Blank and Casino Royale because I love, love the first in the James Bond reboot with Daniel Craig. Love it. But in the end, I just didn't think that the theme actually really fit that particular movie. Martin Blank and Gross Point Blank was most definitely hired to kill people. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But murder slash assassination slash unfortunate demises were just kind of a casualty of the job for 007. Um, Just stuff they got in his way for his ultimate goal. So the intent often was not to go out and just kill someone. It was to get intel. And, you know, like I said, people just kind of got in the way. So despite my love of Casino Royale, I decided to drop it from the list. Then I kept going back to another movie I really wanted to talk about, 2016's The Nice Guys, starring Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. It's a buddy cop movie with some great humor, and I've watched it a ridiculous number of times in just eight years. But Jackson Healy and Holland March aren't actually hired to kill people either. They're private detectives, not assassins. That led me to racking my brain for another movie. I could do Wanted with Angelina Jolie and James McAvoy, or Kill Bill with Uma Thurman, or John Wick with Keanu Reeves, or The Born Identity with Matt Damon, or In Bruges with Colin Farrell, or Mr. Wright with Sam Rockwell, but none of those movies felt right either, and I just could not shake the nice guys. I almost went down a rabbit hole of vigilante movies like Tim Burton's Batman, The Boondock Saints, Promising Young Woman, The Equalizer. But then I stopped that spiral quickly because this is a perfect example of how my brain works and it could go on forever and ever. Uh, Another example is we are doing a Dungeons and Dragons campaign for teens this summer as a part of our library programming. And the teen librarian, Jessica, who has been on the pod, she is DMing. She's the dungeon master for this activity. And I just kind of hopped in and was playing a character and kind of helping out and Every time she would say something, I could come up with a pop culture reference. So I was throwing just quotes and things out the whole time that none of the teens got because they've not seen the movies that I've seen. <laughs> and it was kind of awkward. I was amusing myself, but they just kind of stared at me awkwardly, which is nothing new. So I decided in the end to just kind of shift the entire theme just a smidge to funny individuals that are hired for violence so that I could include the nice guys. So what might you find in this particular theme? This one isn't for the faint of heart. Uh, The funny adds the comedic element, so it's not like it's these deep, dark, grotesque movies. They're intended, actually, to make you kind of fall for charming individuals with questionable morality who aren't afraid of a little violence. Typically, it's a normalish man or men that would be normalish had they not fallen into the profession, which is a weird statement. 
I know. So these guys are probably not normal to begin with because they chose to be assassins or thugs. Uh, they, they seem like decent dudes, though, <laughs> who just happen to rough people up. There's typically a sidekick of sorts, not necessarily assisting with the violence, but they're there as a bit of a, a moral compass. Oftentimes, these individuals also have some questionable skills. Um, at some point, things are just going to totally go off the rails, best laid plans and all. Sometimes it's the fault of our anti-hero. Sometimes it's the environment. Sometimes it's actually the sidekick. But in the ca case of today's two movies, that chaos leads to some of the best comedy. And spoiler, it's the comedy part of these particular movies that have put them on my list. If I haven't mentioned it before, and yes, I do know how this sounds. I find violent movies relaxing. Gore, no. Uh, I don't like a lot of graphic things, but I like clean kills. Don't show me the bones breaking, just the punches. And that's what I love so much about this particular theme, that I get the best of both worlds. I get some of that violence that I find amusing. Again, I do know how that sounds. Um, but I also get the comedy, too, that it's it's not heavy on the violence. Um, you just kind of have put these people in some awkward situations and they use violence to get out of it. So it's just it's a lot of fun a lot of times. What frustrates me about the theme um, when the action scenes aren't great, when you can tell it's a stunt double, that drives me nuts. Um, when some of the actions, you're like, why would you choose to do that? Or um, there's no way that you would get hit in the head that many times with something that heavy and just be able to pop back up. I've seen people with concussions. They are not all there for a couple, <laughs> a couple weeks afterwards. Um, so sometimes the believability of that kind of gets on my nerves. But we're going to go ahead and dive into the movies. Up first is 1997's romantic comedy, Gross Point Blank. We immediately meet Martin Blank and discover he's rather peculiar and he has a rather peculiar career path. He's a hired assassin. He's on a job tasked with taking out a different assassin, which he does. But unbeknownst to him, there's a third assassin who gets the mark, who does actually end up killing the person that he was there to kind of save. So while all this is going on, though, Martin is on the phone with his secretary, who is trying to get him to go back to Detroit, his hometown, for his 10-year high school reunion. She's reading him the invitation. So after a brief meetup, that, that whole scene is done. What, what's happened has happened. Martin knows that the people that hired him aren't going to be too happy. But after that is all done, there's a brief meetup with that third rather unhinged assassin who wants to recruit Martin into a club of assassins or a union of sorts um, so that these kind of mishaps don't happen again. So there's no overlapping with assassining. Martin kind heads off. He refuses. He kind of knows this guy is off his rocker. So he goes and heads off to his next job, which ends equally horribly. He's supposed to make it look like this man has had a heart attack and is attempting to poison him in his sleep. But the fellow moves and the poison drops on his cheek. And then Martin is forced to shoot him instead. <laughs> the client's are less than amused. And when Martin try, uh, agrees to make amends, he's forced to take another job for free. And he has to then take out a whistleblower in Detroit. So Marcella, the secretary, is all excited because that means that Martin can also attend his reunion. A fact that amuses her as she tries to imagine him in high school, she can't really fathom him coming from somewhere. So before heading to Detroit, Martin stops at his therapist's office, even though the doctor pleads with him that 
you know, I am not your doctor. I, I, after you told me what you were doing, what kind of work you were into, I stopped being your doctor. Um, he's played by Alan Arkin and he's amazing. And they're, so their conversation, though, kind of comes around to the fact that Martin is feeling uneasy, unmoored, like he just doesn't doesn't know if he wants to continue in his current line of work. He doesn't know why he kind of feels restless. So the doctor suggests that maybe Martin feels uneasy because he's killing people for a living. And so he encourages Martin to, yes, go to the reunion, but don't shoot anyone for the weekend and see if that helps. Cut to a very unhappy, unhinged assassin, third assassin, who has just found out that the Detroit job has been taken away from him and given to Martin instead. And he is a spiteful man, so he calls the feds to give them a heads up in hopes that they'll kill Martin. Um, saying He's setting him up that, hey, there's this guy going to be in town. He's going to kill one of your witnesses. You should take him out before that happens. So Martin shows up in Gross Point, which is kind of in the suburbs of Detroit, and begins a tour of his old stomping ground. First, he stops because of the siren song of his high school girlfriend, Debbie. Debbie is a radio DJ that's just, she's cool. She's too cool. And she's not overly enthused to see Martin. So he just kind of lurks at her in front of the radio station for a while. Um, and then he goes by the school, his high school, and he starts talking to this teacher who's really surprised to see him. He seems to have dropped off the earth after prom. And so everybody just kind of always wondered what happened to Martin Blank. And um, so he tells her, I'm going to go where you go next. And she's like, I'm going to go home. And she's like, oh, okay. So then he drives by his childhood home. He's going to go visit his mother, only to find out that it is now a convenience store. He harasses the cashier for a few minutes, completely confused, unsure what happened to his house and his mom. And Marcella does some investigation, investigating for him and discovers that she's actually in a facility and he finds out that she's been on lithium for a while. So she's, it's a really kind of a sad scene, to be honest. She goes in and out of confusion, his mom does. And Martin, I guess, had been sending money home, but it's pretty clear that he hadn't made the trip back home to see her in a while. And we also find out that his father is gone, has passed away a few years ago. So he's, he's now at home and nothing is like the way he left it. So that kind of unmoored, restless feeling is just getting worse and worse. So the next day he ends up back in front of the radio station, finally getting the nerve to go up to the station and, and inside to say hi to Debbie. And she aggressively shakes his hand and then attacks him with a kiss and then asks him, you know, where have you been for two, 10 years? Cause he just, he abandoned her that night. So he's blunt. He's blunt with everybody in this whole movie. And I think that's, what's so fascinating. He just confesses, Hey, I'm a professional killer. And then he gets kind of nervous and runs away. So she hops back on the air and calls him out. Cause there's speakers just outside of the radio station that kind of play the music on the city streets and calls him out. And, and so he comes storming back in and she left the air on. So she's still on the air and she forces a microphone in front of his face and kind of makes him confess why he stood her up on prom night. Cause they were, they were pretty close. I mean, they were in love. It, it seems like they were the couple. Then she does a call of action for folks to chime in and give their opinions on whether or not she should give him the time of day, which sets up the rest of the movie. Martin and Debbie kind of doing a dance around their feelings in the past. The feds in town chasing Martin Blank, the assassin. The assassin conflicted about the job he's supposed to be doing. And the discovery that along with the feds, the unhinged third assassin has also called the club members of the club that Martin refused to join 
to Detroit to help take Martin out and steal the job from him. We also meet Paul, Martin's high school best friend, who, along with Debbie, and incidentally Debbie's dad, who ends up being the Mark, the guy that Martin is supposed to kill, they all get drawn into the mayhem as well. Spoiler, Martin finally discovers, like I said, that the Mark is Debbie's dad and knows that he can't actually kill him. He and Debbie get back together at the reunion. They also get attacked by the Club of Assassins. Debbie bails when she sees Martin sitting on the hallway floor covered in blood and there's somebody dead next to him, as one should. I would bail too. And she she kind of goes home and she's talking to her dad. The next day, um, Martin stops by because he now knows that the assassins are there to kill her dad. And so she's, he's going to try to keep them safe. There's a great showdown scene in the house where he's killing off all of these assassins. Uh, and then Martin leaves the business. Marcella burns everything to the ground, the office to the ground, and the two lovebirds head out of town. And they're going to, you know, have a second chance with one another. So why is this movie on the list? How can you not love a movie where a guy is going through an existential crisis at his high school reunion while being hunted by federal agents and a group of assassins, all while trying to reconnect with his high school girlfriend he loved but abandoned? I mean, the plot, the plot kind of kills me. The soundtrack is filled with a lot of 80s charm, and the cast is it's top-notch. John Cusack, I mean, it's a young John Cusack. He's one of my favorites. Now he's a little kooky, but... He's so he was so wonderful ba- about being sarcastic and awkward, and he's kind of an unexpected assassin. I, it fits his personality strangely, but the athleticism was an interesting choice. I mean, I know he he did martial arts. Um, they have that play and say anything. He does it there, and I know that he actually studied it. But there's just he's not Keanu Reeves, so it's kind of hard to watch him in that position. Minnie Driver is so sassy and witty, and like I said, so very cool as Debbie. You just kind of want to be mini driver and have her beautiful curly hair uh just love her jeremy piven is a bit jittery as paul the best friend from high school but grounds the martin character in a very interesting way kind of is that another touch point between his past and his present which is just interesting dan Aykroyd is borderline a bit too much he is the third unhinged assassin but he is hamming it up he is having a good time and then you get alan arkin alan arkin as the reluctant and terrified therapist oh oh you also get the sibling dynamic of joan cusack as marcella with john i love any time we get the cusack brother and sister duo together she kills me I am. I know how problematic Sixteen Candles is, and we are going to dive into that at some point. All of the John Hughes movies, but man, her role in Sixteen Candles with the headgear on and she can't drink out of the water fountain. When she finally does, the water gets all over her face, and she's got a sweatshirt on, a sweater on that has a, a woman with a dress on it with like a flap of additional fabric where the skirt will be, and she uses that to wipe off her face. She is so good at comedic timing. I just, I love her. So that's why it's on the list. It's funny. It's sweet. Some people die (laughs) and it's a good time. A few interesting tidbits about the movie. Jenna Elfman, she is at the reunion. It's her first, I do believe it said it was her first feature film appearance. She is wearing a body brace at the dance. And that is a tribute to the Joan Cusick character in 16 Candles. Martin's invitation to his high school reunion, which is tucked into the mirror as he gets ready to go, requires attendees to, quote, dress to kill, which I think is funny. 
Director George Armitage originally planned to shoot the high school scenes at Gross Point South High, but he wasn't able to get permission from the school board. They felt it would be inappropriate to show someone graduating from Gross Point school system to become a hitman. Uh, John Cusack and Jeremy Piven were high school friends in real life. And the body count is 14. Somebody count him. That makes me happy. So that's Gross Point Blank. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while, I highly recommend a watch or a rewatch. It's a good time. Movie number two. Now for the nice guys. It's a bit salty. I'm just going to throw that out there. It's a bit violent. It is more than a bit funny. Um, If you don't like female nudity, there's a couple scenes in there. Just a heads up on that. There's definitely some language, but boy. Boy, is it fun. it's so funny. I really, really love this movie. It starts with the death of a, an adult film star named Misty Mountains. She has a, she's in a tragic car accident, and she ends up crashing into this family's home and then down the side of a cliff. Then we get a few voiceovers. We're going to be introduced to our main characters. The first, Jackson Healy. He's a hired thug who is currently on a job following around uh, a minor who's in a relationship with the wrong kind of guy and much older kid one punch and the guy isn't going to be bothering him any, her anymore. And that's what of course Healy does. And then he gets a call from a girl named Amelia. She thinks she's being followed and wants Healy to take care of the guy. So then we get the next voiceover and we get to meet Holland March. He's an alcoholic private detective widower. He's got a lot going on who is questionable at his job, gets hurt a lot and has a daughter that just has had to grow up much faster than a kid should. He usually ends up helping senior citizens who have memory issues and so should not be paying anyone to do any investigative work. But he's but he's kind of he's just kind of a deadbeat. He's kind of a bum. <laughs> he's a good-natured bum. Uh, but he's now been hired by actually Misty Mountain, the the adult star, film star's aunt. She seems she claims that she has seen her niece despite the fact that Misty had met her untimely end. And that's how they meet. Amelia gives Healy March's name as the man who was following her. March had been given Amelia's name as a person of interest, and poor Healy is the in-between. But because he took money from Amelia, he has to close the deal. So he breaks March's arm and roughs him up a little. And so then Healy also meets Holly, March's precocious daughter. So that evening, the Amelia situation gets even more complicated. Some guys show up at Healy's apartment wanting info on his client. He refuses, but now he needs help finding Amelia to let her know there are even more guys on her trail. So he hires March to find her, the guy he just broke his arm. March is a little hesitant now, you know, that he's nursing an injury and this guy kind of barged in his home and beat him up. But he agrees because he loves money and immediately takes Healy to where Amelia's protest group is protesting the air. <laughs> they tell him that Amelia isn't there because her boyfriend died three days before. But this guy named Chet kind of pops up and offers to take them to the boyfriend's house for 20 bucks. So the boyfriend, Dean, had died in a fire. Some film stock he had in his house went up in flames. And then they find out that Dean was shooting an experimental film, a.k.a. an adult film, that just so happened to star Misty Mountains and was being produced by a man named Sid Shattuck. He was kind of the producer. The investigation takes them to a Hollywood party where they find Shattuck dead and where March swims with some mermaids. They also find Amelia at the party, but she gets away. Then they're hired by Amelia's mother, Judith, who works for the Department of Justice. She's worried about her daughter and wants to keep her safe, 
We also find out that she's working on a case in the auto industry as well as anti-pornography efforts, which is a little awkward since our investigators have found out that Amelia actually starred in the movie with Misty Mountains. The next day, they track a lead to a hotel near the airport where they get away by the skin of their teeth because there's an assassin from New York in town known as John Boy. They find he's after Amelia. They find Amelia again when she falls on top of the car as they're trying to get away from this hotel. So they end up taking her back to the March homestead where she explains about being in the movie because she wanted to make a point about how the auto industry is polluting the environment and that her mother, who works for the Department of Justice, is in bed with the auto industry. The movie that they made incriminated her mom, sharing exactly how she was involved, names and all, and that's why her mom actually burned Dean's house down in an effort to destroy the film. So she's telling them all this, and then they get a call from Judith, the mom's secretary, claiming that she was asking for them and needs a $100,000 payoff delivered to some guys to get them off Amelia's back. But that ends up just being a ploy, even though they don't know that, to get them away from Amelia so that the assassin John Boy not from the Waltons, can take care of her, and it works. He ends up killing her. Amelia is dead, and the March homestead, because that's where she was still at, is in shambles. Right as they, so, and then Healy and March actually get arrested in that incident because there was a shootout, um, and so they get thrown into jail. The next day they get bailed out, and Misty Mountain's aunt shows up, still convinced she saw her niece. And as they're talking to her, they realize what they that what she really saw was the movie that everyone is after. Um, she started talking about what uh, Misty Mountains was wearing, and that was actually one of the costumes. And so they're like, oh, there's another copy of this movie out there somewhere. They actually track the movie to the LA auto show. So Amelia had planned to crash the show by showing the movie. So they get all dressed up and go to the show to look for the film. Uh, a major showdown occurs. The film is shown and Judith's involvement is revealed. We then get a really fun scene at the end where March and Healy decide to become partners. Uh, Healy's going to become a private investigator and they're going to work together, which means there should be a sequel. And they, I don't think one is planned. And that just makes me so very sad. So why is this one on the list? And I know by that summer, you're like, Emily, that does not sound funny at all. But these two are a great pair. Ryan Gosling is Holland March. Russell Crowe is Jackson Healy. And they are wonderful together. Crowe plays the straight man so well, while Ryan really nails the physical comedy of March. He is also incredibly expressive with his face. There's one scene as they're in that hotel where the New York assassin was there. And they get away just barely, you know, by the skin of their teeth. And they, they're startled, and you can see they're scared. And somehow Ryan Gosling makes one eye eyelids start to twitch. And it's just moments like that. There's also some hilarious just dialogue um, where at the end of the movie – March is talking to Healy at a bar and he's like, you know what? Nobody died. And Healy's like, yeah, yeah, people died. He goes, yeah, but they died quickly. It hopefully didn't hurt very much. It's just a kind of really fast dialogue, which I, I just love. Um, March gets hurt a lot. I also really like that. He mostly does it to himself. And for a while, though, he thinks he's invincible. And that might be my favorite part of the movie towards the end. I mean, this guy has fallen off the cliff when he found Sid Shattuck at the L.A. auto show. He falls off the roof of a, of a very tall building into a, a pool. 
He gets shot at. He gets hit by a car. He And he starts to believe that, you know, I can't die. <laughs> and Crow is definitely believable as a guy who gets hired to beat people up, but yet has a heart of gold. It's just, it's a great detective story in 70s LA that I I just think it's grossly underrated. So if you're okay with some mild nudity and language and violence, but you really like Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe and some fast comedy, I highly, highly recommend this movie. A few interesting tidbits. The project was initially proposed as a TV series, but was retooled as a film after the plot seemed to go nowhere. I think it could actually make a really good TV series. You could have broken up several of the moments and expanded them in the movie into a show. Russell Crowe has said that this is one of two of his films he wishes there was a sequel to because he really liked to play the characters. It was this, and the other is L.A. Confidential, which also starred Kim Basinger, who was Judith, Amelia's mom in the movie. He also put on some extra weight for the role of Jackson Healy, feeling the character as the enforcer thug should be a stocky kind of brawler type. Val Kilmer's son, Jack Kilmer, he plays Chet in the movie. Chet is the one who leaves the protest for the air and takes them to the house that got burned down where they thought the movie was located. Um, He is also the projectionist, so we get to see him towards the end of the movie as well. Downtown Atlanta doubled as 1970s LA during filming. And I think it's fascinating how they can do that. And I know it's smoke and mirrors, but it just really amazes me how they can take a place. There was, I think it was Outlander. They were talking about that in one of the behind the scenes too, that you think it's Edinburgh, Scotland. And you're like, oh, but then they filmed it, filmed it somewhere nowhere near or like that. But they really made you believe, you know, that you'd step back in time. I just, I find that fascinating. I think it would be so cool to be on a movie set just to kind of follow people around and see how it's all done from beginning to end. I would love that. As long as it wasn't a Muppet movie because I don't need that magic spoiled for me. But any other movie, that'd be fun. And my favorite little tidbit that was totally new to me in the planning of this episode. And I got so startled I had to message Watson. I was like, did you know this? Sid Shattuck, who plays the porno producer that is found dead at the bottom of the cliff after Holland March kind of drunkenly falls off a balcony and rolls down to the bottom at that Hollywood party, is played by Robert Downey Jr. Director Shane Black directed RDJ in Iron Man 3 and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So his big role is to sit leaned up against a tree, very dead. (laughs) I love that. I love it when you get cameos because people just really like working with people and have created relationships with them. I think that's wonderful. So that's it for today. That's all I've got. Just one episode left in this season. Is this a full list of my favorite movies? Of course not. Of course not. But it's been fun. Finally get to talk, finally getting to talk about some of them. In the final episode, we're actually going to go back to that idea of movies set all in one day or all in one night uh, with a conversation about two favorites. Death at a Funeral, that was directed by Frank Oz. Um, so it's the British version. It, there was a remake uh, set in America. I really like the British version, and we'll find out why later. And Arsenic and Old Lace, hands down the best Cary Grant movie out there. Also, um, I just realized they're also both about dead guys. Now that, <laughs> now that I think about it. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone 
who really doesn't know what they're talking about, well, they can join in on the fun as well. Or if you want, you can share the podcast. That would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.